Hi, this is Jonathan, and I played the human wizard, Jonathan the Magimuscular. Hi, I'm Jack. I play Trevancore, a half-elf Beastmaster Ranger. Hi, this is John. I play your half-orc barbarian, Carlton Tanks. Hi, this is Julia. I play the rock gnome cleric, Bernice Q. Burns. And I am Lauren, a.k.a. Obocrazy, your humble DM, and welcome to Dungeons and & Dragons and & Drunks. Hello, enablers. Welcome to Drinks with the DM, Volume 2. I'm your DM, Lauren, a.k.a. Obocrazy, here to answer a couple of questions, give you a few bloopers to enjoy, and fill you in on a exciting announcement that's going to be coming soon. We're actually going to be doing our first ever official giveaway on Dungeons & Dragons & Drunks. We've done fundraisers for charity before, mostly live games that we've been playing at RTX, but we've got some fun stuff to actually give away to our listeners. There are going to be more details coming in the next couple of weeks, so definitely pay attention to the beginning and ends of episodes as we'll be giving you details on what we'll be giving away and how we'll be doing it. And I'm really excited about this first one. We've got something really amazing to give away to some of our fans. So with that teaser out of the way, let's answer some questions. We put out the call for our fans to send us questions, mostly about D&D and about being a dungeon master for Dungeons and Dragons and Drunks. And we got a lot of really good questions and a lot of, and a wide variety of questions too. So let's dive on in. Clayton Thompson on Twitter asks, what is crit fishing? I hear it used in the show often. So crit fishing is when your players have advantage on an attack for whatever reason. Advantage means they get to roll their attack dice twice. They get to roll the d20 twice and take the higher result. Crit fishing happens when that first roll is really high, 18 and 19, something where it's obvious that they've already reached whatever number they need to be successful in their attack. But they're going to go ahead and roll the advantage anyway, because who knows, maybe the second roll will be a 20. And so they're fishing for a critical hit. They're hoping, yeah, maybe the first time I rolled a 19, maybe the second time I roll a 20. You know, it's kind of fun to do if you've got advantage and you already know you've hit. It's a reason to go ahead and just attack again. Patrick on Twitter asks, do you try to rein in tangents or does that keep things fun? I think there is a a weird fine line you have to walk with letting your players go off on tangents, whether it's just kind of the the fun little things that they talk about when something strikes them as funny, all the way to actually running off to go check something out in town or just do something for fun. And you want to let the players do that because it's fun. I mean, D&D is supposed to be fun. And if they're riffing on something or if someone wants to go check out the exotic fruit and vegetable stand, for example, I think it's fun to let them do that. You definitely don't want to let it go on too long because eventually it either just gets ridiculous or boring. And it's not an exact science to figure out when the best time is to say, oh, okay, let's let's kind of get back to the main plot here. But I think tangents can be a lot of fun. And in the end, as long as your players are having fun, who cares? And so Patrick asked another question, which was, 
What's the most outrageous thing you wish your players could fight? My first reaction to that is the Trask. Because outrageous to me is that moment where your players are epic level. They have every magic item on the planet. They have mastered their class. They are, they've won Dungeons and Dragons. What do you put them up against? You put them up against a Trask. How often do you actually get to do that? How often do you get to throw? I think the Trask is like a level. Oh, what level is the Trask? Look this up right now. I'm making them fight the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, they are epic level. Here we go. Trask. Okay. T-A-R-R-A-S-Q-U-E. Because no beast is complete unless it's got a Q in it. The Trask is a challenge rating of 30. It is a 30 challenge rating. It is, it's insane. It has a strength of 30 and a constitution of 30. It's got a plus 10 modifier to both of those things. It has just more hit points than it knows what to do with. Its armor class is 25. It's insane. It is absolutely crazy. It is immune to fire, poison, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks. It can't be charmed, frightened, paralyzed, or poisoned. It's it's kind of crazy. Yeah, so that that would kind of be my my dream monster. I feel like if I could throw a trask at my players and feel like they actually had a chance in that fight, they've reached such an epic level that we've done some really cool things. Hey Luke, what outrageous thing would you love your players to be able to fight? The Manticore. Now that I know that the Manticore is unaffected by a sword of butt is a very lethal adversary. <laughs> Nick Grungeon on Twitter asks, are you going to do any kind of themed adventure for October a la the Pumpkin King? Probably not. And that's not for lack of interest or trying, but the the way that D&D&D is recorded and then posted means that there's some necessary lag between when we play and when what we've played ends up online. And I tried to do something subtle enough to not be a Christmas thing a while back. And I actually ran the adventure or that part of the adventure for D&D&D for my players in December. And those of you who've heard the Cult of Mammon episode probably know the specific thing that they fought that isn't overtly Christmas. But obviously I did, I, I put enough Christmas in there that Jules figured it out super quick and and called Krampus exactly what he is. The problem was, when we recorded that episode, due to the way that we were releasing those episodes, it, I don't think it came out until about February, because we were still bi-weekly at that point, and some of those episodes were two and a half hours long and were being split up. So I don't think I want to run any holiday specific episodes, mostly because I'm either forced to run it so much earlier than the actual holiday that the players are going to feel weird in order to be able to post it for the holiday, or I run it when it's appropriate for the players, but then it posts a month afterwards. And so it's it's kind of awkward for everybody involved. If we were actually able to do a live show, that would be amazing. I'd probably do more stuff like that. But you know, since we're recorded, not so much. 
Patrick has one last question, which I think is kind of an interesting philosophical one. My DM once told me it's the DM's job to work to kill the group. Do you feel this is a valid thought process? On the one hand, whatever your DM decides they want to do, as long as the players are having fun, then they've made the right decision. And there are some players who want the Dark Souls experience. They want to feel like this is a epic struggle. They want to feel like every attack is a moment that they could die. They, they want to play the apocalyptic losing battle. They want to play Dark Sun. They want to play where life is difficult and hard and trying actively to kill you. There are players who absolutely thrive in that environment. And so if that's what the players want and the DM is delivering on that, then yes, it's absolutely valid. That being said, I think those players are rare. And I think unless you know absolutely that your entire party is made up of those kind of players, then no, absolutely not. My job is not to kill the group. My job is to entertain them and for them to have fun. And I think in most cases, death isn't fun. Death can be epic and memorable. Death can be a fun moment in hindsight. Death can be amazing. And it can be a chance for a cleric to do something crazy and amazing or for the player to change characters for a variety of reasons. But in general, my philosophy on being a DM is I want to challenge my players. I want them to feel like the world is dangerous and what they're doing is not easy. And I want them to have to fight for everything that they want to do. However, I I want them to feel like it is a winnable fight. And certainly the dice affect that. There are certainly fights that I think are well balanced that just because of how I roll, I I come very close to killing people. And there are some fights I think are well balanced and I roll like complete shit and the party steamrolls me and this epic fight that was supposed to be a, a, a grand melee is anticlimactic. You know, but you can't control the dice. All you can do is try to create encounters that, in my view, pose a significant challenge, but one that can be overcome. I feel like when it comes to the fights, if at the end of the fight the party is... <sighs> yes, we did it. And they feel that sense of accomplishment. If they feel like they've, they've hard fought their way to victory, then I've done my job well. I have presented a realistic challenge, but not a, a nightmare scenario. Once again, your mileage may vary. In the end, as long as your players are having fun, you're DMing right. And so this is probably one of those things in where your best bet is as a player to talk to your DM or as the DM to talk to your players and find out what do your players actually want out of this game? Is 
that level of challenge? Do they want Dark Souls? Do they want to feel like they make one wrong move and they're dead? Or do they want to steamroll through adventures? Do they want, are they more interested in the role playing aspect and they don't really care about the fighting? Because in the end, they're your audience. And if they're not happy, you're not happy. And then no one's having fun. And D&D is supposed to be fun. But no, my personal opinion is it is not my job to kill the group. It is my job to help them have fun and to present scenarios that should be fun and interesting and exciting. And if I kill them, the adventure ends. And so no one's having fun anymore if the adventure ends. Oh, here is an epic question. An epic level question. Carolyn Scarborough asks on Twitter, what's the best way to get into DMing? Wow, is that an amazing, crazy question to try to answer. There's no one best way, which is, of course, not the answer you want to hear. There's a bunch of different factors when it comes to getting into DMing. If you've never played or DMed before, you might want to play first. You might be totally okay with jumping into being a DM. If you don't have anyone to DM for, there's your first step. You need to find a group. How do you go about finding a group? A ton of different ways. The best way I've found has always been find a game store in your area and show up and start asking around. Look for posts. Look to talk to people who are in the store. The group that I play, that's my home game, I found them literally by just showing up to the local game store on Adventure League night and looking to play D&D. And the store had an Adventures League, so they had DMs there with players, and they'd just throw you together into a bunch of people in a DM, then you'd play. And eventually, a bunch of us who were going week after week liked playing with each other, and when the store unfortunately closed down, we then continued to play outside of the store, and we've been playing for almost seven years now. So you can always go to a gaming store, a local convention uh sometimes libraries have them look around in your local area for places and where people are going to play find people who are looking to play chances are if you want to dm it'll be easy for you to find players it is unfortunately difficult to find a dm because it can be a lot of work and it can be intimidating but if you want a DM, the players will come to you. If you go to your local gaming store and they don't have anything really set up and you put a sign up saying looking to DM a fifth edition group on this night at this time, chances are really good you're going to get some phone calls. You're going to get people going, hey, so I hear you're going to run a game because there are more people looking to play than there are looking to DM. You can also go online. Dungeons and Dragons and Drunks is all done through Skype and Roll20. None of us live even in the same state. And there are a multitude of places you can go online and search for people to play with. You can put out a post saying, hey, I'm interested in DMing a group. Anyone looking? And put together a, a group online and go for it. If you've already got a group... And you're all set to DM and you just need to know, well, okay, I'm going to DM, but now what do I do? If you've got nothing, your best bet is to get the official starters kit. Wizards of the Coast put out a wonderful 5th edition starter set that is 
self-contained for everybody. It includes everything you need as a DM, everything the players need. It includes an adventure. It's going to get you started without having to drop a ton of money. And it's going to be perfect for people who have pretty much nothing. If you've got some stuff, if you've already got some of the books, if you've already had some experience playing, if you are interested in running a campaign beyond what's in that starter kit, you can look to either buy some of the published adventures that Wizards of the Coast put out. There's several of them out now. Storm King's Thunder just came out couple of weeks ago, those are, you know, gorgeous hundred page books with months worth of adventuring in them. Everything you really need is a DM besides the the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Monster Manual. And you can very easily run a very successful campaign for months with any of those books. You can also look on DMs Guild to look for pre-made adventures. Everything from free stuff people just put out there for fun to big, long, epic adventures to everything in between. Or maybe you want to make up your own, which is cool. There's a lot of resources out on the web for how to do that. I highly suggest watching a bunch of streams and of other people playing and see what you like. Go watch Critical Role. Go watch Heroes and Halfwits. Go watch the Matt Coville series of YouTube videos about running the game. And take what you like and discard what you don't like and come up with something that you find fun and that hopefully your players find fun. Most of the time DMs get into DMing because you're playing in a group and you lose your DM for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes the the DM just needs a break. Sometimes the DM burns out and leaves. Sometimes they move away. But for whatever reason, the person who has been running your group no longer is running your group. And someone has to step up or else your group doesn't have a DM anymore. And so I think a lot of us, me included, got into DMing because someone had to do it or else we were going to stop playing D&D. And then you find out that you love it. So hopefully that helped. I mean, can you think of anything else? I mean, it's a pretty broad question. What's the best way to get into DMing? I got into it by simply kind of fleshing out my story ideas into the D&D setting. And I just had fun just kind of pre-building uh, a little homebrew small bit and uh, just doing some of the, the pre-work. Even though I planned it to go nowhere, just doing that to kind of get the mindset was was a lot of fun. Just building a small world to yourself, even if you get someone to play it or don't. Uh, just kind of building little adventures. And then you've got a venture and you have to find people to go play it. So there you go. Now you're DMing. So most of these questions have been either about Dungeons and Dragons and Drunks or D&D in general. I also got kind of a fun, interesting, very specific question from Schwarm on Twitter. The question is, Cleric's magic circle reversed prevents Strahd from charming anyone outside the circle? So those who don't know, my home game is currently running The Curse of Strahd. My husband, who you've heard a little bit on this podcast already, Luke McKay, is the DM for our home game. And I am a Aarakocra monk named Kwai. We are currently 7th level. We are currently 
actually on the way to try to kill Strahd right now, which will probably end badly, but hopefully it'll end badly in the most epic way possible. So I can't fully answer this question because I have been avoiding, for obvious reasons, looking at any of the information about the Curse of Strahd. I don't want to spoil it for me. I don't want to be metagaming. So I've done my best to try to avoid any information. If my husband is looking through the book, I try not to look through it. He's been avoiding telling me about specific things. And I have not looked up the stats for Strahd. Now, that being said, I've been a fan of D&D long enough that I am aware of the history of Strahd. I certainly know he is a very powerful vampire and a wizard. And as a DM, I am aware of what vampires and wizards' abilities are. So I'll answer this question with the caveat that I don't know what specific stuff Strahd can do. There might be some very specific resistances, immunities, powers written into Strahd in the book that would counteract anything that I'm about to talk about. But for the sake of argument, and for Schwarm's excellent question, let's just consider Strahd a vampire, a normal vampire that you would find in the monster manual. With that in mind, we need to look at this spell, because this spell is fun. So the important thing for this spell is that the vampire is considered an undead creature. Let's take a look at Magic Circle. All right, so Magic Circle, it's a casting time of one minute. So it's not quite something that you can easily cast in a battle. In a lot of games, and in my game in specific, a round is considered about six seconds worth of time. So one minute is ten rounds. So if you've got a casting time of one minute, it's going to take you ten rounds to get this spell off. It's got a range of ten feet. It requires some stuff, but it lasts for an hour. So here's the spell. You create a 10-foot radius, 20-foot-tall cylinder of magical energy centered on a point on the ground that you can see within range. Glowing runes appear wherever the cylinder intersects with the floor or other surface. Choose one or more of the following types of creatures, celestials, elementals, phase, fiends, or undead. The circle affects a creature of the chosen type in the following ways. 1. The creature can't willingly enter the cylinder by non-magical means. If the creature tries to use teleportation or interplanar travel to do so, it must succeed on a charisma saving throw. Two, the creature has disadvantage on attack rolls against targets within the cylinder. Three, targets within the cylinder can't be charmed, frightened, or possessed by the creature. When you cast this spell, you can elect to cause its magic to operate in the reverse direction, preventing a creature of the specified type from leaving the cylinder and protecting targets outside it. And then you can cast it at higher levels to make it last longer. So, what Schwarm is proposing is basically put Strahd in a cup. Cast Magic Circle on Strahd, and he's stuck in this cylinder, unable to leave unless he's got some magical means of doing so, and then he has to succeed on a charisma saving throw, and he has all kinds of issues trying to attack anybody on the other side of the cylinder walls, and that includes targets not being able to be charmed, frightened, or possessed, which is a real danger with vampires. So just knowing Strahd is a vampire, 
and just knowing the basics of this spell, yes, absolutely. If you drop this thing on top of Strahd, he can't charm anyone outside the circle. Done. Okay, that's the easy answer. There's a couple things to keep in mind. One, it's going to take you 10 rounds to cast this spell. In at least my game. I mean, maybe your game, your DM runs slightly different. But if the casting time is one minute and each round is six seconds, it's going to take a while. Uh, Two, the range is 10 feet. So you have to be kind of close to Strahd. That's a dangerous thing. Three, it doesn't completely prevent the creature from being able to cross the magic circle plane, either going into it or coming out of it. It just makes it difficult. They have to have some magical means of transport. And I believe vampires have Misty Step, as well as a whole bunch of other things. And they have to succeed in a charisma saving throw. And depending on the DC of your spell, that could be easy or hard. Once a vampire can cross that barrier, then magic circle doesn't really affect anyone anymore. So it's an all or nothing play. Your your cleric has to spend 10 rounds to try to put a glass jar on top of Strahd. And if it works... It's going to be amazing. Strahd is not really going to be able to attack anybody without disadvantage. He's not going to be able to charm anyone. He's going to have a hard time leaving. But it's going to take 10 rounds. And if he does leave, you're kind of screwed. And once again, because I don't know the specifics of Strahd, he might have some other way of getting out of this magic circle. But to answer your question in the simplest way possible, the TLDR of what you've asked If a cleric casts a reversed magic circle, it will prevent Strahd from charming anyone outside the circle as long as he is inside. As long as you capture him, yeah, I would rule that he can't charm anyone outside of it. Good luck on those 10 rounds, though. That's going to take a while. We have one more question that actually got asked to the entire group. Thanks to Jonathan, who brought the question into one of our recording sessions, We actually had a question asked of all of our players. So this comes from our good friend Kyle, a.k.a. Goober, and he's been catching up on the episodes, and he asks, I've been catching up on D&D. It's good stuff. I'm up to episode 27. Good for him. If you had to pick a color for each person in the party, what would it be? This may or may not be gift-related for the next RTX. Uh, if you had to pick a color to represent that character, what would it be? And the reason why I brought it up while Jules was up, because I'm pretty sure I already know the answer to that, that for well, her, it's yellow. Well, yes, but it's like a very specific yellow. A very burning flame-like yellow? No, it's more of a, like, lemon yellow. Lemon yellow. Mm. Okay, I will, I will put or that mustard. in. Or mustard. Or like any, or like a golden honey. I'm more of a, like, forest green. If you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? Well, yeah. So he already said I was, he was thinking metallic purple for me, and I'm good with that. that I, I'm, I'm cool. So I was also thinking green for Travancore. Specifically forest green, but yeah, that's about right. Well, that's what I was going to go with, but okay. No, you're not forest green. I, I was actually thinking, woods. Carlton, red. Because of rage. Rage, yeah. blood. Sure. If, if it's free, it's for me, so. Or like a nice troll booger gray. 
<laughs> should I should I NPC some some colors? Do you have any any requests for NPCs you'd like to color? Uh, I don't know. He just asked for the for the uh, for the player characters. Well, then maybe for the DM. What what color would the DM be? I am a rainbow, of course. All right. Yeah, that does make sense because she's like all the things. I have to be everything. And she's fabulous. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Shadow. I think shadow. Shadow would be black. Shadow would be gunmetal gray. Well, that could work. Shadows aren't black. My shadow's black. Shadow could be purple. Purple shadow. I will say Soria is blue. See that. Is she physically blue? Have I missed that? No, actually she's not. She is browns and reds. So Aarakocra, the males are the peacock colors because they're the show-offs and the females are the more sedate colors. So, oh man, definitely had her pictured as teal in my head. A teal female version of Big Bird. Because that's what the mini image you She's had got was. blue accents on her on her armor and stuff for other reasons. That's all for volume two of Drinks with the DM. I'm going to take my whiskey and Coke and go get it refilled. Meanwhile, I'll leave you with a couple of more recent bloopers for you to enjoy. And next week, stay tuned as we return to the Heralds of Greenest to see what they're up to on the long road. Ladies and gentlemen, last time on Dungeons and Dragons and Drunks. I'll just edit that burp out. It's okay. <laughs> nah, leave it in. Greenest leave it in. is safe. Does this mean I have to put pants back oh, on? I'm sorry. I had my finger up my nose. My bad. <laughs> I love you dearly, and I try to think of creative shit, but I, it also balances out of me not paying attention to something. Carlton, stop metagaming. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I was uh, on Facebook and then I opened Roll20 and I noticed the little tiny owl you put next to Jonathan. Oh, okay. Oh my god, I need to see this owl. Well, it's, it's the owl. It's the owl oh that he god, sent me that he won. it's amazing. It's the moist owlette that I sent oh, wow. him. Thanks for listening to Dungeons and Dragons and Drunks. Follow us on Twitter, at Dungeon Drunks, or www.libshark.com. And see you next encounter.